Hello and welcome back to our podcast, Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do? I'm Babita Sharma and today we're continuing our conversation about action-based solutions to the climate emergency. So let's talk politics. How do you use your power as a politician to bring about change when successive governments aren't taking climate change seriously? Is it all blah, 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 as Greta said? Well, we caught up with a politician, Clive Lewis MP, who campaigns to put climate action at the centre of the political agenda. Clive chatted to us from his constituency of Norwich South in the east of England. We're very interested in you and your journey from journalism to politics. Will you just tell us about that? Uh, yes, yeah, so I mean, <laughs> when I, 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 I've always, I've always enjoyed politics from a very young age. I was, a bit, I remember being pulled away in middle school, which, for those of you who don't know, is a kind of strange system in between kind of lower or junior school and secondary school that they had in Northampton and I, I it was during the miners strikes I'm probably showing my age here and I got into a debate with uh, someone whose uh, dad was a policeman and he was being bussed up to the to the to the industry to the dis- dispute up in the north and uh, we took different sides in English and it got quite heated and, and at the end the teachers pulled me aside and said how come where are you learning all this and I said well my dad and my granddad they're both trade unionists and I was so I was kind of I was kind of ensconced in politics from a young age and I loved it. I absorbed it. I lapped it up and it became second nature to me. So really going into journalism after after the kind of the battering I got for having kind of left wing politics in the student movement, just on the cusp of kind of the new Labour government, um, <clears throat> I thought I'd go in and and learn the art of journalism. And it, it obviously had possibilities to go into political journalism. And, and that's something I ended up going into. I didn't think I'd necessarily make the transition to politics, but I did. But I was that for me, journalism was a route to being able to write about things that I was passionate about and doing a job that enabled me to be political to a degree, or at least around politics. Being in the BBC, I think I found that quite difficult. Yeah, without, without a shadow of doubt, as you well know, being in the BBC yourself, if you've got strong political views, um, you can make them known at the morning meeting, but you don't normally get... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine them kind of going, yes, thank you very much, Clive. You'll be doing the um, skateboarding duck, Clive, uh, and we'll be stories to, uh, to the other person. Yeah. yeah, you'll be doing the and finally story at the yeah. news bulletin. Uh, you know, it's in, but we are journalists, but we've never thought about being politicians. I mean, there's a big shift there that's um, almost a, a, a bridge too far for some of us, but you, but you well, did it, so... You've just come up with a, 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 fanta- from a, a kind of line from a fantastic film, the title of a fantastic film, Bridge Too Far, which is in many ways how I ended up coming into politics. So when I was in Afghanistan, which is a kind of strange place as, a, as an officer in, in, in the army, um, as a reservist, um, and, and that's another story about how I square that with my politics. Obviously, we're all on a journey. And back then, I thought I was doing the right thing. Um, I, I, I ended up in a place where, you know, you kind of thought you weren't coming back. And it was 2009, there were a lot of IEDs, a lot of people coming back in different ways. And it may, it gives you a, a clarity of thought and you kind of ask the question, what am I doing with my life? Where do I really want to go? What do I really want to do? If I get back, what do I want to do? And so I had a kind of epiphany in Afghanistan, which was if I get back, I'm going to do, I'm going to take some gambles and some chances and do what I've always wanted to do, which is go into politics. And I happened to be working in Norwich as a political reporter, and I didn't know whether Charles Clark, who'd lost his seat for Labour, was going to stand again. There was a Liberal Democrat there. It was 2010. I had to watch as austerity was enacted by the, the coalition government. And I remember turning around to my 
political editor and saying, um, I'm not sure whether I just want to tell the public how long the rope is. I yeah. think I actually want to cut it. Because austerity was about a rope that was going to, you know, you know, execute different parts of the public realm and, and different communities were going to suffer. I you know it was that's what we were being told austerity was. And and at the BBC, our job is to tell people what services were going to be cut and the implications for them. I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to stop it. And you can't do that at the BBC. Um, it's that's not what the BBC is about. So I made a decision and and obviously I decided to become an MP, try to become an MP which obviously has implications for your BBC journalism in the sense that I think it's a bit harder. There are lots of people from on the right of politics who've made the journey into politics or have tried to make the journey, not done it and gone back. It's a little bit different, I think, if you're on the left. Um, another another story entirely, but definitely is a bit different. No, you're like the real life Jonathan Pye, do you know, um, the comedian? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think where he's like ah, from from inside of journalism, you want to you you know you you you're in journalism for a reason because your principle you know whatever reasons that you're in it, but you're you're right you can't influence it. So you've made that transition, but that also takes a lot of um, I don't know self belief or belief in in your politics in the Labour Party and in, in the party that you then went to to try and make the differences that you uh, wanted uh, to. Yeah, I'd say I've obviously had a kind of. I've been on the journey and and I kind of I'm quite a pluralist and so you know I work very closely in here with Caroline Lucas which raises some eyebrows because in in a one in a first past the post system and because of the nature of, of politics in this country it's extremely tribal and yet you know people come into politics for different reasons and I, and I am aware that even though I dislike the politics of some people in this place in parliament I'm aware that many of them and I have met them there are people, conservative MPs in here, and you know it's it's sometimes seen as taboo for on the left to say this, but there are conservative MPs in here who I think have come into politics they believe for the right reasons, and it's it's and you have to take that into account. They they genuinely believe that what they're doing is in the interests of the country and the people that they want to represent. I think some people are a bit more brutal. I think some people are a bit more. Uh, are quite open about the, the special vested interest that they're there to represent. And they think that that is in the best interest of the country or themselves. Um, but there are definitely people in here who have the right motivation, but are in a different political party. There are also people who have um, motivations in my party, but whose politics are different to mine. Um, but we are a very tribal party. And do I think the Labour Party is the way, the light and the truth? No, I don't. I think it has, it's one Tent, a big tent amongst many in a progressive community that has a, a route map to the truth, if you want to put it that way. Um, mm. But it isn't the; uh, it doesn't have a monopoly on the truth, uh, which I think some of my colleagues and some people inside the Labour family, it's called Labourism, um, kind of cling to. And I think you know, in a modern world, you can increasingly see that that isn't going to give us the results and solutions that we need to get over the you, line. I'm so relieved. I think, to hear you talk like that, because when we put this series together, we very much wanted to speak to people that are using action based solutions in the climate crisis. People that have done extraordinary things and people that are campaigning on a daily basis. And when we talked about this episode, which is politics, Katie and I were a bit like, and I actually more so was a bit like, oh, I don't want to go there. Like, I don't want to do the politics thing because it's going to be so divisive. And 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 it is blah, blah, blah. And it has been blah, 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 like Greta said. and. And then we found you and um, well, we didn't find you known about you for a while, Clive. But then I think what what we wanted to maybe delve a little deeper with in this episode. 
and also maybe so that our listeners understand is how individuals can use their position as a politician to kind of bring about change so talk to us about the climate crisis and why how how you got involved with with campaigning and what you're campaigning for so I came, I became involved with climate my, my my first so obviously climate was something that you can't be unaware of but your um consciousness of it kind of develops and there's a kind of breakthrough moment and my breakthrough moment was 2011 and a compass document that came out on um called the green new deal and um and it was the first time i read something which talked about going moving beyond growth which i i kind of brought into the kind of the paradigm of growth i i did economics at university for me it was the be on end all that's how you grew the pie to give everyone economic growth i'd never for a second you know entertain the idea that growth was a bad thing um so you know and then once once your eyes have been opened you begin to see that people are talking you know robert kennedy and the you know bobby kennedy sorry in the 1960s was making speeches about it and and it's it is it is something that you kind of it clicks but this was the first time i'd seen things brought together and it was a kind of paradigm shift in terms of how the economy should work and what its objective should be and that there was this now this fabulously important re- reason that we needed to get on and do this not just because it was some kind of socialist ideal or utopian principle but that the planet was actually degrading and potentially heading to a chaotic future then that kind of sharpens your mind and makes you think well i need to listen to this so that document opened my eyes to it i then went to something called the new economics foundation summer school paid for by bizarrely the gmb trade union that mm-hmm. I was a member of then, and they're obviously not always a lot you know, seen as a kind of environmentally uh, friendly trade union, although some people within the union are, but the, the leadership often not. Um, and uh, I went to that, and it changed my changed my view of, of 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 the environment and its place in politics, and how this existential threat was both an opportunity but also a real danger, and we have to do something about it. So that's what drove that began to increasingly drive my politics. I know that some people around me in the labor and trade union movement thought I'd been into a school, been basically brainwashed in a cult and came out talking about the climate all the time. And, <laughs> um, and so and so that was my journey into climate politics. How am I kind of enacting that? Well, I'm a co-signatory to the Green New Deal with Caroline Lucas, which, you know, that was signed under um, my when I was uh, under the court in the Corbyn years, when I was very close to John McDonnell and Jeremy and others. And and they weren't happy with me. You know, tribalism isn't just something on the right part of our party. It's on the left as well. They weren't happy. But I said, this is a gold standard. This is something to aspire to. And I'm really proud to put my name to it. And this is what you, John and Jeremy, this is what you need to aspire to. So that was in 2018. And I'm really pleased to say in that in the kind of two years running up to that general election, they did get they did get it. They began to get it and they did get it in the end. That 2019 manifesto, whatever we think about it, was was very one of the greenest we've ever had. Um, so the Green New Deal with Caroline is part of it. I'm on the Environmental Audit Committee, which is kind of like holding the government and also organizations and corporations to account for what they're doing. We've had um, we just initiated a food security inquiry. George Monbiot came to that and many others. And he told us it's the first in-depth um, food security assessment any um a kind of sovereign assembly that he's seen has conducted we'll putting that we're putting that report out soon so you know in terms of in terms of working on that in terms of doing the kind of environmental side of things 
Um, it's something that's really important to me. I'm a, I'm a co-sponsor of the Green uh, Energy Equity Bill, which is about making sure that energy is a right, a human right for everyone in this country. It's affordable uh, and universal and that those who can afford to pay more for their energy. Um, so, you know, everything I do in here is either has a climate or democracy focus, more or less. Um, and for me, the two are interchangeable. You know, I believe the climate crisis is a function of democratic failure. I think Extinction Rebellion, um, Stop Oil, and many of the others around in that area are also coming to that conclusion themselves, or have been there for some time, um, that we have a, a, a broken democratic system because no one votes for the climate crisis, do they? No one votes for food insecurity. No one votes for the instability. No one votes for the desertification of, of much of uh, Southern Europe. So um, yeah, that's it's definitely a function of, of democracy. And I'm here in the mother of parliaments. You know, so, you know, it's a, it's a great place to be to try and to make those changes, although a very frustrating one. It's interesting. We, we've spoken to Miata Fanbula from the um, New Economics Foundation and George Monbiot as well on this podcast. And I think they both came from a similar point of view from you of climate crisis is also social justice. It's also, as you say, fail, failures of democracy. And how can we reimagine society to compensate for those failures? But just talking to you now, listening to you speak, it must be um, very frustrating when you are working in politics, your Green New Deal, all of these things that are very sensible, the climate crisis that you read briefing documents about, you you understand what's happening, and yet there's opposition to it. How do you cope with political opposition to what you must see as very sensible ideas? So, <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's deeply frustrating and and there is a tendency to want to kind of go full full green full hulk and smash 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 the system I, it's deeply frustrating but can you can uh, can that happen uh, i don't know if that was an option uh, I'm not, the thing is the thing you know that's that's kind of that's revolutionary talk isn't it and, and revolution you know the, I, the, the we can come back to this you know and and you know smashing systems and and kind of the, the the forces you unleash in smashing a system often then become imbued into the, whatever the next system is you create into the best of intentions. But that that violent tendency is embedded. History shows embedded in in that new constitution, in that new kind of mindset. So I think careful what you wish for. We have to have a peaceful revolution, a democratic revolution. And that's something that we may be able to talk about in a minute that I think is something really interesting that's going on. But it is deeply frustrating. I mean, there were those in the, on the conservative side, and there were some in my party as well, I'll be honest, who think that, that the net zero, 2050 net zero um, objectives are unrealistic and too costly. Okay. And actually, for some, more in the conservative party goes against the vested interests of the people who are frankly, bankrolling a lot of their activities or will be giving them a job in the future. And that's not anything uh, controversial to say. You can just go back and look at where people get their jobs after they leave this place. You know, look, watch where those MPs who are leaving this year, their ministerial positions, look where they end up. Look at the companies and organisations they end up. Yeah. They all end up predominantly in the extractive industries, the oil companies, uh, the, you know, the kind of those responsible for deforestation and so on. That's where they'll be or in the financial sector which is funding that. So I think, you know, clearly there are, there are people who think that net zero 2050 is wrong, full stop, and that actually the climate crisis is a scam. There are some people in here that believe that. There are, and then there's a kind of gradation of people 
all the way into my party who just think, you know, you saw briefings a couple of weekends ago where people were saying, uh, coming out with sentences like, we're not sure you can't have, um, you've got to either choose between climate or the economy. Well, <laughs> where have you been since the last 20 years since Nicholas Stern came out with his report? You know, the OBR, even the OBR is saying that, you know, by 20, 2100, we'll be spending 300% of current GDP on fighting and dealing with the climate crisis. If it's the two are, 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 I mean, are, I mean, Clive, you're laughing about it, but it's, it, it, I cannot believe that there is still this kind of burying your head in the sand. Well, actually, do you know what? I can believe it. I can believe it. And I think that's what frustrates me. But you are at the forefront. You're on the front line of that. And yet you're campaigning. In, I, do you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall? Do you feel like there is some kind of progress here? I do think I am millions of other people are banging our head on a brick wall. But you know what? If millions of people bang their head on a brick wall, that brick wall will break. <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, there will be lots of bruised foreheads and worse, but, you know, that's that's a wall that needs to be broken. And it's not going to be done by a few individuals in here, like myself. And that's just not the case. It's going to be done by by people speaking up and speaking out. This is, you know, so this is this is a failure of democracy. We are components of that democracy. We need to come together to make sure that that change happens. I mean, one of the first things I would say, if you actually want to see real change, we know that the research shows that, you know, um, governments which are elected by PR tend to be more responsive to the needs of their people. And we have a two party system formulated in the 19th century, nice and simple for people to understand. We're now in the 21st century. You know, we have high levels of literacy and numeracy. People no longer need a little picture next to the box, by and large, to be able to vote where they put their cross. We could have one, two, three, four, five. It's a it's a deeper, more engaged form of of giving our consent to political parties, and it's one that I think we should have. That is a baseline for what we need in this country. But the reality is, the only way these things are going to change is through um, democratic changes and a kind of shake up of our constitution, a shake up of our democratic system. It's stuff that I know XR and others are working on now. They're calling it revolutionary democracy. I hope you're going to talk to them because it sounds really exciting. But it's like saying. Our democratic system is broken. It isn't fit for purpose. The fact that people around the possible next leader of the of this country, Keir Starmer, can come out with stupidity like that and then going on to advise him in government tells you a lot about our broken politics. So I think, you know, radical, radically changing our democracy is, I think, a kind of it's part of the duality of the climate of climate campaigns and the climate crisis and what I'm about. For me now, the climate crisis is as much about talking about our broken democracy as anything else. It's funny, though. I mean, those those kind of that duality, as you put it, it's a, it's a kind of a tension, isn't it, between um, social tipping points, people kind of understanding enough of what's happening in the climate crisis. We spoke to Nadia Whittam MP as well about her kind of education drive in, in the climate crisis. But to kind of revolutionise things, as you're saying, we do need a population that kind of understands I guess and that then also requires politicians to be brave enough to be telling us what's happening and a media that can tell us what's happening but where's that tension or where do you feel the solution is there within politics which is your arena you know how can you or how should politicians you obviously do it very effectively communicate to the population what's happening the realities of what's happening in the climate crisis to give them that knowledge. 
so there's no so there's there's no shortage of people standing up and talking about this we know that and there's no shortage of podcasts talking about it but they're all very compartmentalized very isolated in their own silos and 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 there are certain what we call the mainstream media it, it, there is a way of actually being able to kind of using that whether it's through netflix whether it's through the bbc whether it's through um various other kind of functions to be able to kind of ex explain and ex express those views i kind of genuinely think you know schools have a massive part to play in this and you've spoken to nadia that's a massive part but there's also kind of a, a way of kind of mass communicating with people and that is the mainstream media the problem at the moment is and and I'll just give this to your listeners we have a, a voting system which um, basically means that whether it's Worcester woman or, or, or Stevenage woman or Mondeo man or Redwall voter, there are normally around about a million voters in around about 50 or 60 key marginal seats in most elections who dominate and dictate who the next government is going to be. And what that means is that political parties tend to disproportionately focus on a very narrow set of interests, those million people. And um, those million people, um, they're what they what they consider their interests to be, are in part, not entirely, but in part dictated by where the ma the mainstream media in this country tells them. So if they tell them that the boat situation in the in the channel is the biggest political issue that this country faces, as opposed to the climate crisis, as opposed to lots of other things, then they will. I, I hear it back on the doorstep, and I say to people, the the, the figures are actually lower than they were in two thousand two, two thousand and three. And yet there wasn't this existential crisis. So why why now? Why is this an issue now? Well, there are lots of reasons for that. But so what first past the post does, it allows you to it allows a small number of people to disproportionately influence what is discussed in this place. And then that means that parties like mine have to discipline MPs like me to stay on message and talk about those issues. And that means that a lot of my colleagues aren't talking about the issues that perhaps they want to or should be are talking about the issues that they're told and disciplined to talk about to ensure that they communicate to those very powerful swing voters. If you live outside one of those key seat constituencies, your voice is literally dead to the to the to the political establishment because you're already there. Your your MP's got a you know a 15, 20,000 majority. Yeah. Not going you, anywhere. So it sounds like you're almost a bit like a lone ranger in that place that you're sat right now in Parliament, you know, Clive, that you're <laughs> Well, yeah, people have called you that, haven't they? Yeah, um, and, I, and I and I wear that I wear that badge with honor. You know, I wear it I wear it proudly because you know to be a maverick. This place is designed. I tell students when they come in, look at this place. It's shock and awe. It's kind of um, it's it's Hogwarts on speed. It's it's literally um, designed to shock and awe. It's seen people like me come in. You hear it. You you hear the place say to you. I've seen your kind before. There'll be more like you and we've dealt with you. You come in, you think you're going to change the world. You think you're going to change this country. Yeah, get in line. We've seen your time before. And that's what this place does. It's the tradition. Everything about it is about is about corralling you into these narrow corridors and making you do and say certain things. Gosh, it, it sounds like other institutions I know quite well as well. It does. I wouldn't say, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was just necessarily where no, you are. No, but... It's right. And if you cut your teeth in those institutions before, you're kind of you're kind of in a way you're ready for it. But the difference is that some things are changing. Social media, which is a double-edged sword, has given us all more of a voice. There's been a democratisation. Technology has democratised people's ability to speak up and out. Podcasts is one way that this is done. You know, this wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, so there are there are there are changes that are kind of uh, good, but I think in here, yeah, I'm probably a maverick because I 
have refused to kind of tow the line that's been laid, the path that's been laid out for me, that probably means you'll be an irrelevancy in terms of holding political office. But there are other there are other way forms of power, other forms of giving people that power and helping people find their voice. I also kind of feel if everyone just sounds the same, people lose interest in in politics and they lose and look the same, right? If everybody looks the same too, I think that's that's the other thing. It's about representation for everybody. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you though, um, you talk about that system change, that peaceful revolution that may be some way off. I don't know if it will happen in our lifetimes. Um, but if it were to, that would mean that you wouldn't be an MP, right? As and we know like, it. You know, so this is why I wanted automatic reselection in my party, which is a kind of obscure internal debate that happened under, under the Jeremy Corbyn period. Lots of MPs refused to engage with this, wanted out of it, pushed back on it. Basically, meant every five years, <clears throat> you have to go before the membership of your local party and say, this is what I've done. This is my track record. Make me your candidate for the next election. I personally don't think that's offensive in a democracy. And yet <clears throat> many of my colleagues did. They thought that it would mean that they would likely lose their job. PR is the same. There are no safe seats under PR. Is there a big support for PR amongst MPs? No, because you can have safe seats under first past the post. It means a job for life. And you can see what that means. So I, I'm, I, you know, look, genuine democracy means that there probably are no jobs for life for politicians. I don't think that's a bad thing. It means you have to keep on your toes and it means you have to respond and be reflexive to the needs of your constituents. That shouldn't be a bad thing in a democracy. And yet people in the political class kind of fight that. So um, not everyone, but a lot do. So I'm quite happy. I may not end up as an MP under PR. I may not end up as an MP under um, various, you know, more democratically engaged models that I propose and, and support and champion. But is that a price worth paying if you have a more reflexive, responsive democracy that actually begins to tackle the problems this country faces? Why would you not have that? You know, you grew up with a dad who who had a certain set of beliefs and a, a granddad. And I just wonder, as you as a parent, so you are a dad, mm -hmm. you are a dad raising a child in a climate crisis. You are a dad sitting in a seat of power responsible for making decisions how does kind of your childhood and how you were raised um, and how you're trying to raise your own child how does that influence your a your politics and be your politics in, in relation to the climate crisis so I had a kind of quite a traditional upbringing it was kind of do as I do as I say not as I do but I think with my daughter I when I look at her I'm definitely She's definitely a free, far more of a free spirit than I think I was at her age. And she's encouraged to think for herself. Obviously, that does come up against, no, Zana, I need you to get ready for school, not lay on the floor. In <laughs> yeah, a, put your socks on. <laughs> put your socks on. There's a, we're on a clock here. So there is a, is a, fine, there's a balancing act, which is always um, something interesting. But I look at my daughter, when I look at my daughter, I, I do think, so she does musical instruments. Her, her mom's does most of the parenting because I'm a politician I'm here between the constituency and London it makes it difficult I am I'm definitely the second parent in that relationship with Zana and it's that's hard and it's tough but it's the reality of the life that we lead and I look at her and I see that she's you know she's she's about to learn she's about to start the violin she does dance class um she she does acting and she she she, she loves her life she has a very lovely rich life but there's a part of me that thinks, you know, maybe she should be learning 
martial arts or maybe she should be learning gardening or maybe she should be learning something more practical because of the world that I fear is approaching. Um, and but how do you I know I've told my wife this and my wife kind of looks at me aghast you know it's like yeah well if you wanted to if you want if you wanted to go to kung fu then you take her that's fine but don't ruin her childhood because of your fears of the future um so it's I look at my daughter and I often find myself thinking will you be hungry in the future who will be here to look out for you what kind of life are you going to have and that does sometimes feel a bit dystopian. But I think when you look at how fast this climate crisis is now unfolding, people are beginning, the penny I feel is beginning to drop. You know, we're looking at what's happening in the Mediterranean and North Africa. We're looking at what's happening in North America, the forest fires. The, 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 forest, the fires are in the, in the, in the Tanska. It's just, it's, it was something that was going to happen for many years. And all of a sudden it's here, it's arrived. And everything the scientists were saying is happening. And that terrifies me because now those same scientists, and I'm very privileged to be able to speak to many of them, the climate scientists, the, the biodiversity scientists, they're telling me it's not good. And the international kind of agreements and the cords and the politics of it aren't good either. And there's a lot of greenwashing going on. Um, and people are being told, I mean, I saw President Obama talking about, I don't know if you saw the clip, talking about his daughter came to him and it's, a, it's gone viral on the internet. And his daughter said to him, you know, dad, a lot of my friends, she's 24, a lot of my friends say, what's the point? Why, why are we even bothering? The world's doomed. And he said to her, of course it's not doomed. It, 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 only if we let it, only if we let it happen. He said, we can keep temperatures down to um, two degrees, two and a half degrees, then that's better than two degrees. And if and two and a half degrees is better than three degrees and three degrees is better than four degrees. And I thought to myself, well, okay, yes, that is technically true, but it is also a very depressing thought that we're now in the realms of saying to our children if we can keep the temperature below 2.5 that's that's a victory 1.5 was meant to be the victory for us and under 1.5 we're now at 1.5 i kind of feel you there's a balancing act between between being realistic with your children mine's five so there's a limited amount that i can do of being realistic with them but also not you know but not making them give up hope. You know, hope was in Pandora's box for good reason. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's I mean, my my daughter Clive is four and I, and I hear you when you're saying about what you can say, but um, I've had the same thought about maybe dance classes aren't the right thing. Maybe cooking classes, like actually, you know, camping outdoors, how would you survive? And we'd like, we'd just end up somewhere. Would you be able to build a fire? Would you be able to do all those things? That is really crossed my mind in a way that I didn't think it would um, as a parent in this current time. Uh, how, I mean, how does it make you feel as a dad? Angry, sad. Um, yeah, ang both angry and sad, I think. Angry in the sense that I feel that I'm not, I feel, I feel there's a personal failure um do you why because I feel I always think to myself what more could I could I do what more could I one of the things I sometimes think about is if when my daughter gets a bit older and she decides to look on Hansard or decides to look through the kind of social media archives she'll see that I was supporting the, the, the Just Stop Oil um, activists I was supporting XR I spoke at their rallies I've 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 not shied away from tough decisions I can tell you now coming out and saying that 
in my party is, is anathema at the moment. These people are, you know, they might be annoying. They might be antagonizing. But frankly, given the scale of the crisis that's heading our way, that's the least of our worries. So, so no, look, yeah, I do, I, do, I do think to myself, I want my daughter to be able to look back and say, but at least I know my dad did his best. You know, he was in a position and he did his best. I don't think it's enough because if it was, we wouldn't be in this, this position. Although that is kind of expecting a lot. But I, I want her to know that I tried my best. I did my best. Um, and, but I, I, you know, there's a point where I think my grandchildren, will they even have history. You know, that's, that's where a lot of parents who are kind of aware of what's going on in the world increasingly are. You know, the temperatures that we're looking at mid-century now are incompatible with a global civilization. Um, so frankly, you know, people being annoyed at Wimbledon or test cricket, get over it. You know, they've, they've got a message and that message needs to get through. And I know it's annoying. I get that. Um, but actually the scale, you know, when there are food riots, that's going to, that's, that's something to get angry about and annoyed about, not stop oil and an, in, and an inconvenience. I'm sorry. That's how I feel. And I know a lot of people in my party disagree with that, that they're doing damage, but actually they're needed. They're really needed. And, and I think, so I want my daughter to know that I've done everything I can. And if I'm wrong, if I have overdramatized this and got carried away in a dystopian kind of fantasy, then you know my daughter will have a really big chuckle with her friends about how foolish her dad was. I, I will, I will, I'm pleased. I'm happy to have that happen. But if if I if I am right and you're right and you know Cusp is right, then then it's important that you know we do what we do. Wow, Clive Lewis MP there with some really powerful reflections on being a politician and a dad in the climate crisis. Please do join us next time when Babs and I are joined by climate comedian Matt Winning. Matt talks to us about the power of humour in the climate emergency and how laughing at it all might just unlock our ability to understand what's going on around us and take necessary action. Catch you then. Mum. Well, the planet died before I do. Is a corner shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough, and edited by Nisha Patel.